1: Welcome back to Mariners Pod. Great to have you with us once again. Thanks for being here. We're going to have some fun today. During the course of this season, we're going to reach out and talk to some former Mariners as we move through the season and share some great stories and uh, hear about what they're doing now and that sort of thing. And we're going to start our first conversation today with former Mariner Scott Bradley. He was a catcher for the M's. His first season in 1986, played with the Mariners until 1992. Really fun conversation. A lot of great stories I think you'll enjoy. He's been in baseball ever since his playing days. He's been the head coach at Princeton for the last 24 seasons. It's pretty amazing what he's done there in his time. And not only on the field with uh, conference championships and NCAA tournaments, over 400 wins, but also... A lot of players to the major leagues and front offices as well. So some great stories to tell, a very fun visit, and a fun conversation to start our series this season with former Mariners. We start with his early days with the M's.
2: You know, the interesting thing was about, I actually had a short stay with the White Sox before I came to the Mariners. So the Yankees traded me to the White Sox we ended up coming to Seattle for a, for a road trip. And I just remember what a absolutely spectacular city it was. Um, you know, how much, how much I enjoyed it. You know, we had a little bit of time, jumped on a ferry, sort of had a chance to really take in the city. And literally three weeks later, uh, I get called into uh, Jim Fergosi's office and said, Hey, we just traded you to, uh, you know, to the Mariners uh, for Yvonne Calderon and You know, I'd sort of been shuttled back and forth a little bit. I thought I was going to get an opportunity to play with the White Sox. But uh, the really amazing thing about coming over to Seattle is it was just a bunch of us at the same stage in our careers. I mean, with Alvin Davis and and Harold Reynolds and, and Mark Langston and Billy Swift and Mike Moore and Mike Morgan. There were a lot of guys who were trying to establish ourselves. So I really feel like I had an opportunity to fit right in. Um, I, I made some great friends. And Dick Williams is still somebody that when I look back on my career, didn't care who you were, didn't care how much money you made. If you showed him that you knew the game, if you showed him that you had a little bit of toughness, he played you. I, I think it also came over the Mariners at the time, Roger Clemens had just struck out, uh, set, set the strikeout record. And, and I was somebody who was known for putting the ball in play. So With the number of that that Mariner team, the number of times they struck out, I figured I was going to get an opportunity to uh, get a few at-bats.
0: Well, you mentioned playing for Dick Williams, and one of the amazing things about your career is to look at the managers you ended up playing for. I mean, Yogi Berra, Lou Piniella, uh, Dick Williams, who you just mentioned. Billy Martin, I think, was in there as well. It was. That's quite a list of managers you ended up playing for
2: so I guess it's no surprise that I've turned out to be a coach when I had a chance to, to, to be around those guys. And, you know, you also throw in, you know, Tony La Russa, you know, for, for a short while. And uh, my baseball pedigree, I was so fortunate to be around, you know, when I think that sort of my lineage goes back to learning from Yogi Berra and Billy Martin. Uh, and even now a couple of my Prince three of my Princeton players are big league GMs. So we have Mike Hayes, who's the big league, who's the GM of the the Arizona Diamondbacks. Mike Chernoff is the GM of the uh, Indians. And then Chris Young, who had a great season uh, for the Mariners at one point, is now GM of the Texas Rangers. So um, it shows that I'm getting old and it shows that I've been around for a long time. Was coaching always something
0: that you knew was going to be a path of yours? And did you actively really pay attention to those guys when you were playing for them?
2: Oh, a hundred percent. I knew I was going to be a baseball lifer. I come from an athletic family. My brother Bob is one of the most renowned soccer coaches uh, that the U.S. has ever produced and has coached, you know, ar- around the world. When I started playing, he had started out his coaching career uh, actually at Princeton University at the time, and I could just never see my life without athletics. So I tried to learn. I tried to take a little something from everybody that I was ever around. And, you know, starting out in the Yankee organization, when, like I said, when you mentioned the, you know, the Billy Martins and the Jeff Torborgs and the Yogi Berras and, you know, the others that you, uh, you learned from along the way. And then coming to Seattle, I really enjoyed playing for Dick Williams. I mean, he was tough, competitive, but I think he knew that I wanted to coach. So there were times where – he would make his point to me about what he expected. Uh, sometimes they were tough lessons. I can remember, this is a funny story. I, I'm, I'm a baseball nut. So we were playing a, a spring training game against the Cubs. And Andre Dawson hit a dribbler down the third baseline. And he had run down the, down the first base and he came back. And the bat was literally right where I put my feet. So I picked up the bat and waited for, here is Andre Dawson to come back. And I handed him the bat and you know the game goes on well about five innings later and this is a spring training game uh we made a, a pitching change so it, i was out on the mound and dick you know the starting pitcher whoever he was taking out ran to the dugout so it was just dick and i on the mound and he looked at me, and he in his gruff voice he goes do me a favor i said sure sure what's that he goes we have bat boys to pick up bats don't you ever pick up somebody's bat ever again you know, he's on the other team and he just gave me an earful, you know, for it. And I knew that he was just trying to teach me a lesson. He was trying to teach me things that he, that he believed in. Uh, and there were a number of instances like that where, you know, he'd come over and give me a stern talking to. And I, I know he was only trying to, uh, to, to teach me something that he felt was important.
0: You mentioned your brother. I am fascinated. You, of course, played and coached at the highest level. Your brother has coached at the highest level and, and gained some of the biggest wins in Team USA history. You in baseball and he in
2: soccer. How did that happen going to different sports? You know, it's interesting. It, it all goes back to my mom and dad. They made sure that any sport that we had a chance, and I have another brother, Jeff, who actually, if you want to add into this, uh, was a member of the media, covered the New York Yankees for for a number of years, He's now director of communications for uh, Toronto FC in the the, the MLS. And he also started his own baseball glove company. He found a little niche and he creates baseball gloves for kids. So all his gloves are scaled for like six to 12 year olds. So they're terrific. But uh, my dad made sure that we had a chance to try any sport imaginable. We grew up in a town, Essex Fells, New Jersey, that went to a regional high school, West Essex High School. And West Essex was a soccer power. We had a legendary soccer coach named named Ralph Dugan. And um, you know, we did everything growing up. We played tennis and golf and soccer, whatever the sport was, we we played it. My dad was a football, basketball, baseball guy. So we were playing all those sports. When my brother showed up his freshman year in high school, you know, the soccer coach kind of grabbed him and pulled him into pulled him into soccer. You know, he just has done things. I look at my career and, you know, I'm pretty proud of what I've done. It's minuscule compared to what my brother Bob has done in the, in the soccer world to coach the U S national team, to then coach the Egyptian national team. And if somebody wants to really see some amazing things that he did, there's a couple of documentaries that were done on his time. One is called, we must go with everything that was going on politically in Egypt at the time with what he did really inspiring. And then he became the first American to ever coach in the English Premier League in Swansea. His son Michael has been a, a mainstay on the national team for you know a number of years and has played around the world. So my brother Bob is really one of my true mentors. And whenever I have issues about culture, about team building, uh things like that, he he's the first person that I go to.
0: You know, your time with the Mariners, it was such an interesting time. I feel like you bridged two eras. Kind of the Alvin Davis, Mark Langston era of the Mariners, bridging to the Ken Griffey Jr., Randy Johnson era of the Mariners. And you were there for for both.
2: What do you remember about playing with Alvin Davis specifically? You know, the first thing that anybody, whenever Alvin's name is mentioned, is just class. One of the finest human beings that I have ever been around. Um, You know, such a family guy, uh, just an incredible person. And, you know, just an amazing hitter and just an amazing player. You know, he was, he was king in Seattle at that point, you know, of course, before, before Junior came in. And just the way he carried himself, the way he interacted with his teammates. And like you said, I mean, there was also Phil Bradley. Uh, you know, Phil Bradley was just so talented and so driven and so intelligent in everything that he did. You know, Harold Reynolds, uh, I still keep, I see Harold quite a bit back here in New Jersey you know, with him at the MLB network, the relationships that you build up with people, the, you know, the Billy Swifts, I said, the Scott Bankheads and, and, and Mark Langston and those guys. And, and I think the best part about those early teams, Gary, is that we all fell in love with Seattle. Uh, we literally made Seattle our homes. We stayed around in the off season. Uh, we were at Husky football games. We were at Sonic games together we were at the T-Birds hockey games in the, in the winter. Every one of us fell in love with Seattle. Uh, we didn't leave in the off season. We stayed around. We were visible. You know, we, we, were, in the, we were out in the community. We were all involved in our, different, in our different charities, you know, and in some ways we did a lot of baseball camps and everything, everything that Dave Valley has done with his foundation, um, you know, and, and everything else. And I think people really took to us because we really became part of the community. You know, we, uh, we were involved in clinics. We did, you know, we traveled around, we did things. And Seattle has become a really good as a college coach. now Seattle has become a terrific area for youth baseball. They're really producing a lot of players. And I'd like to think that we can take some of the credit for that. Uh, our teams our teams weren't the greatest. Uh, But I think as individuals, we all had a passion for Seattle. We all had a passion for baseball. And uh, I I think it definitely, I think when people look back at those teams, that's probably what comes out more than anything else is just, you know, we were a bunch of guys that fell in love with the, fell in love with the city and a community and really tried our best to stay involved.
0: What was it like to watch Ken Griffey Jr. in those early days? I mean, a 19-year-old kid coming up, uh, and you were there for the beginning of it, uh, the beginning of his rise and what turned out to be a Hall of Fame career.
2: Well, you know, I was – I think Henry Cotto and I are the only two guys that we actually played the, – the, our first experience with Ken Griffey Jr. was we were playing with Ken Griffey Sr. with the Yankees. Mm-hmm. So Ken Griffey Sr. was playing for us, and Jr. was a pain in the neck running around the clubhouse when he was like 12, 13, 14, 14 years old. You know, getting in everybody's lockers and 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 stuff like that and spring training and everything else. But my first recollection, and Harold and and, and Alvin Davis still still won't work together. We we still talk about this. When when the Mariners drafted Junior, uh, you know, they always bring the first round draft pick into town, you know, have him take batting practice, do a bunch of different things. So, you know, Junior gets drafted and he goes out and he starts taking batting practice. And again, he's so relaxed, he's got his hat on backwards. You know, he's out there in a batting cage. You got all the media and everything around. And he just starts off by just lacing line drives in the left field. And here you have, like I said, a 17-year-old kid, whatever he was at the time, just stroking line drives into left field. Then he starts hitting balls up the middle. Then he pulls a couple balls, takes a little break, towels off and proceeds to start rattling the kingdom seats with with home runs. And I remember Alvin just kind of like looked at us. He goes, boy, it looks like he belongs already. And I said, you know, I said, you know, Alvin, I said, he grew up around the big red machine and Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and all these guys. Why does he care about being around Scott Bradley and Harold Reynolds and Alvin Davis? He thinks he's as good as us right now. Anyway, you know, it was just incredible. The the, the year that he made the team out of spring training, the Mariners gave him no chance whatsoever to make the team. And they were going to get him some at-bats early in spring training. Well, they gave him that batch early in spring training, and all he did was hit line drives and get base hits. So now it was starting to get a lot of attention that not only was he the best player on our team, he was the best player in the Cactus League. And I think the Mariners at that point panicked a little bit in terms of, well, we don't want this to happen. We, we don't want him in the big leagues at, at this age. So they started running him out there every inning of every game against all the best pitchers in the Cactus League, all the tough lefties, all the... And all he did was keep getting hits. And he got hits and hits and hits. And finally, it got to the point, there was no way they could, you know, there's no way that that they could send him down. And and I remember this, about a month into the season, uh, before he actually hurt his hand, but about a month into the season, I think we were getting ready to go into New York. And my dad is a great baseball man. And I asked him, I said, you watched... Mickey Mantle, you watch Henry Aaron, you watch Willie Mays as young kids come into the big leagues. I said, how do you compare Junior to those guys? And my dad thought about it for a second. And he looked at me, he goes, I I can't believe I'm going to say this. He goes, he's better. He said, all three of those guys had stretches when they were young, where they were overmatched. He said, I've watched every Mariner game all year. He's never overmatched. He said, he just, he's comfortable. He's never overmatched. And, you know, we look in the things that he did, you know, and then you, you, you add in the injuries and stuff like that. I mean, just a, what, what a great experience for any of us to, to say that we were able to, you know, sit back and, and watch that. And then to be there when Ken senior came over, you know, we, most of us if were fortunate have relationships with our dad and, and baseball And to sit there before the start of a game and to watch these guys, like how many times have you played catch with your dad? And they're playing catch right off the side of the field before a major league game. And Ken Griffey senior hit second, Ken Griffey junior hit third. And you'd sit there in the dugout and all of a sudden you hear this voice, hey, come on, dad, get a base hit, you know, from the on-deck circle. And at that point you said, this is never happening again. This is really a unique special situation to be part of. Um, again, when we were watching junior play, you knew he was a generational type of a player, even, even when he was young, you know, just the way that he did everything. Um, but when senior came over and people, sometimes I think because junior was so good, people forget what an unbelievable baseball player Ken Griffey senior was. I mean, just a phenomenal, I mean, a, an all-star, a, you know, a borderline MVP type of player, you know, himself. And you just start thinking just in sheer numbers, like, okay, well, he's got to be senior has to be such a great player that he's still playing into his forties. And junior has to be such a good player that he's in the big leagues by the time he's, you know, 20, we no doubt knew it. In fact, Jim Lefever mimeographed and made copies the first day that they played together he made copies of the lineup and then signed all the lineup cards so that everybody could have a copy of it. Oh, wow. So we knew, we knew at that time that this was something that, you know, probably would never be done again.
0: And it was about that same time. The Mariners made a big trade, trading Mark Langston, getting a a big lefty named Randy Johnson. And when I think about Scott Bradley, the first thing that pops into my mind is the no-hitter you caught from Randy Johnson against the Detroit Tigers. What do you remember about that night? Uh, The last
1: pitch. A man all alone with himself, but not all alone here, as 24,000 incredibly rabid Mariner fans are looking for that final strike. That will set Mariner history. Here comes the left-hander's wine. The 0-2 pitch on the way. Swing! It's over! He has done it! High fastball Randy Johnson being mobbed by Scott Bradley down to greet even the entire Mariner team here on the 2nd of June. It ends at 9.51 Pacific Daylight Time. Tour- Randy Johnson with the first or no hitter in history, and they are going crazy. Everybody saluting the tallest man to ever put on a uniform in the history of baseball. Randy Johnson has done it. He has no hit the Detroit Tigers tonight, two to nothing. My, oh my!
2: You know they did the poster uh, that's still that's still around. You know after the last out, and not that I'm an English major. But all I can think about when I, whenever I look at that poster is the adventures of Gulliver's travels. You know, there were a bunch of people hanging on, a bunch of like normal-sized people hanging on Randy's waist with his arms extended, you know, just, just way up in the air, you know, towering above above every one of us. But that was just the start. I mean, you know, we knew Randy's talent was good. He was actually the third person in that, in that trade. We got Brian Holman and Gene Harris, who at the time were considered... Probably maybe more polished products than, than than Randy, and when Randy came over, you know there were stretches, moments of brilliance, but then he would kind of lose command. You know, yes, I caught his no hitter. Uh, I also caught him one game where I think he walked ten or eleven guys in like three and a third innings, and I spent most of the day running back to the backstop to to retrieve, you know, to retrieve baseballs. When you look at his progression and how serious he became about his craft, um, how good his command became. I think any baseball historian you'll talk about will basically say, you know, Randy Johnson and Sandy Koufax are the two greatest left-handed pitchers that anybody has ever seen. So, uh, again, I I start thinking about some of the, you know, some of the experiences I had, you know, in Seattle. We haven't even mentioned Edgar Martinez yet. I always say that, you know, Ken Griffey Jr., was the best baseball player that I ever played with. And Edgar Martinez was the best hitter that I've ever played with, bar none. Um, And the way he carried himself and how he had to fight his way through the minor leagues before he was given a chance. And to watch Edgar, to be able to sit on a bench and watch Edgar Martinez hit every day as somebody who now is a coach was incredible. To watch Omar Vizquel play shortstop. I mean, my experiences that I had as a member of the Mariners were just, there's so many of them it was just uh, as somebody who just has a real passion for baseball, I had some great experiences in Seattle.
0: Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that, that last out, uh, that last swing by Mike Heath against the Tigers. And and I have, that will always live in my memory. And Jack Morris told us a funny story a couple of years ago about sitting next to Mike Heath after that swing. And just like, Mike, you had no chance to hit that ball. (laughs) It's such a funny story, but you know, he's so electric. I mean, catching him must've been
2: so different than catching anyone else you've ever caught. It is. And you know what we figured out in that game, Gary, more than anything else, you know, Randy had a tendency when he was young to overthrow his fastball. And we always to say that he had this kind of like a whirly bird finish and he's so big and he would kind of get off balance and he would throw. And most of his pitches would end up being up and away to, to right-handed hitters. And he would fall off the mound and, It would take two or three steps for him to regain his balance. He'd be over by the third baseman, you know, by the time he was done. And so often in Randy's career, people just said, oh, you're so big. You throw so hard. Just throw all fastballs and stuff. Well, we had discovered um, maybe a start or two before that, that anytime he fell off balance, the best way to get him back into his rhythm was to throw his slider because he never overthrew his slider. He would always be under control, in balance. So if you go back, and the thing that I remember about that game is anytime he threw two fastballs in a row where it looked like he had lost his rhythm, no matter what the count was, we'd come back and throw a breaking ball. And the breaking ball would really settle him down and get him right back into his right back into his rhythm. And you know, the split, you know, between fastballs and breaking balls in that game. You know, was probably 60 fastball, 40 you know breaking balls, and then once he got ahead, you know, he made people aware of the breaking ball. You know, the the last pitch that Mike Keith swung at, I literally, if you freeze frame it where I caught it, I'm almost standing straight up, right? I came completely out of the crouch, and then uh, Mike Keith was funny because I think then after he, you know, he did. The rumor was he walked back into the locker room and destroyed the TV in the clubhouse. You know what, every time Randy pitched, there was a chance that that was going to happen. You know, certain hitters would come up, even on any pitcher, certain certain hitters would come up and you say, boy, this, this hitter has no chance to get a base hit. Well, there were certain hitters that came up off Randy, where not only did you know they wouldn't get a base hit, you knew they couldn't put a ball and play off them. So you knew that it was literally, all right, this is a strikeout. They can't, this guy can't even put a ball and play off them. So it was a pretty powerful feeling being at the controls of that Lamborghini, being able to just sit back and uh, put my foot on the throttle every once in a while.
0: I bet. When you think about your time in Seattle, what are some of the other memories that come back?
2: Uh, The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Uh, The number of people and great friends that I made because of my involvement. When I first came to Seattle, Matt Young was sort of running the the 65 Roses Club is what it was was called. He ran a big golf tournament. So I had just joined the Mariners. They had the big Cystic Fibrosis Mariners Golf Tournament. So I I had an off day, we went out and played it. And at the end of the season, I think Matt was traded at that point. And somebody came up uh, and asked Billy Swift and I if we would sort of take over the the golf tournament. And the O'Keefe family, Tim O'Keefe and Jeff Scanlon, um, you know, still just great friends. The number of people that I met through that charity, you know, I met my wife, Mary, through 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 that charity. It's just an amazing thing. And again, it got me wrapped up in Seattle as a city. Uh, I made a lot of friends outside of the Mariner organization, which to me made my experience in Seattle even that much better. So that, I mean, the, the teams and, and the, the people that we were around, as I mentioned, were great, but you know, just falling in love with the city. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable place. You know, especially as I've gone away and been in others, in other spots. And um, you know, I was also there when rumor was. I mean, it was pretty. We were we were moving, right? I mean, we had real estate people from Tampa calling us up, trying to sell us, sell us homes because we thought we were moving that particular that particular off season. So we were there and everything else and. I'd be really emotional if I, you know, if I was in a situation where there was no baseball in Seattle, like almost happened before, you know, the great run. And that was after I left, of course. Um, But having a Seattle needs to be a major league city and having the Mariners there, having them do well um, is really heartfelt for me.
0: Yeah, no doubt about that.
2: I got to ask you about a play that
0: you may not even have seen, but you were batting against the Kansas city Royals. And you hit, I think, a double off the wall. And Bo Jackson happened to be playing left field. And he threw out Harold Reynolds essentially from the wall in left field. It's one of those plays that has always just amazed me. Did you even get a look at that when uh,
2: you were rounding first base, heading to second? Oh, I watched the entire – I had a front row seat for that one. Uh, and it's funny because every single time that Harold has me come on the MLB network, we break down that play because it became like a legendary, you know, it's just called the throw. Um, And in the Bo Jackson folklore, that's one of the two or three moments that they always, you know, that they always show. And I can just remember, you know, bottom of the ninth, Harold, who had won the American League stolen base championship was running on the pitch. And I smoked the double into the left field corner. And we had sort of a, a plexiglass on top of the wall and it, it bounced on the sort of rubberized uh, warning track, bounced up and Bo just went running over. And when I saw him pick it up off the wall and not take a step, and he just turned and described, he just flung it towards the plate. And I think, thinking, ah, there's, there's no chance, game's over. I'm ready for everybody to come on out and, and, and jump on me and celebrate. And I see the ball and then everything got in slow motion. It was like Harold started running in slow motion. Everything was slow motion except the ball. And the ball was like gaining ground on everybody. And you look at where the throw was. And over the years, I've been around Bob Boone quite a bit. Bob's son, Jake, uh, who was Brett Boone's son, played for me at Princeton and now is in the Reds or in the Nationals organization. Bob said, if you watch it, when I hit the ball, he started walking to the dugout because he just assumed that the game was, was over. And he said, when Bo picked it up and threw it, he was on the AstroTurf outside of the home plate circle. And he said, you know, maybe I should go back to the plate. This might be, you know, here comes the throw. Maybe I should go back. And he literally walked back to the plate and caught the ball on top of, on top of home plate. So uh, again, another sort of moment, Harold and I laugh about it all the time. I keep telling him he cost me my chance for, you know, I didn't have too many great moments when I was a player and Harold cost me one of them by being thrown out at the plate. But uh, again, just, uh, you know, one of those things you're in a spot and you know, you're around these amazing athletes and, Bo Jackson was clearly one. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Well, you've mentioned it a couple of times for the fans that don't know, you've been the head coach at Princeton for what your 24th season now and over 400 wins and seven NCAA tournaments. And as you mentioned, you some of your former players in the majors as players and GMs, front office executives, when you think about all your time at Princeton, everything you've done, what are you most proud of? I
2: I think just the culture that we've created and the student athletes that I've been around, of course, the guys that we have that have gotten to the big leagues, you know, get most of the attention, but you know, the, 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 doctors, the lawyers, I mean, there's just so many of them. When you coach at a school like Princeton, you're just around some incredible student athletes. You're around some amazing individuals so we try to create a culture where they can develop in every area of their of their life you know if somebody's interested in going into baseball we try to make sure that we put them in the right position so that that can happen if somebody wants to be we have a mentoring program actually as part of our uh, of our team where you know we kind of assign each player you know to certain groups if they want to go on to wall street if they want to be corporate execs if they want to whatever it might be we try to match them up with an alum from that you know from that field so i think the culture that we've created and the student athletes we've been around you don't coach at a school like princeton where you're worried about the wins and losses we want to compete in the ivy league i really want kids to develop in whatever they want to develop i want them to stay engaged in the program as they you know as they as they get older so we've had some amazing amazing kids and like you said for me as a baseball person at a school like Princeton and Ivy League program, we've had eight of our guys, you know, make make the major leagues, which is really, we had one year where we had six players in the major leagues at one time and I, I think the Sporting News or somebody did an article and, you know, they listed all the schools that had, produ- that, you know, that were all the college programs that had guys in the big leagues and we were like third or fourth on the list, wow. which is you know, amazing to think and, um, and again, Seattle Got a firsthand look at one of the really amazing student athletes that's ever come out of the Ivy League, and that's Chris Young. And, you know, Chris was American League comeback player of the year when he was here in Seattle. Uh, ended up the next year going to Kansas City and and winning a World Series title, you know, with the Kansas City Royals. But anybody in Seattle that spent any time whatsoever with Chris Young really had an opportunity to, to, to be around. The type of kids that we have in our program, so that's probably what I'm more proud of than anything. Yeah, you know, winning some games, going to the NCA tournament. You know what you said? I have over 400 wins. You know, what? I have over 400 losses too. <laughs> so everybody, everybody forgets to uh, you know to, to mention that one all the time. It just means I've been here a long time. Uh, it's been a great spot, you know, for me. Um, you know, every once in a while, I get the itch to maybe think about you know getting back into professional baseball and. In some capacity, but it, it's been a great spot for me, and like I said, being around the student athletes that we've had has really been, you know, uh, an, an amazing experience.
0: Lastly, I have to ask you one last thing. When you came up to the big leagues, you played for Yogi Berra. Did you ever get any Yogiisms? Oh, probably
2: more than you could imagine. We could probably write a uh, write a new book, and um, it was interesting because again, Yogi grew up near me. I'm from New Jersey. So Yogi's son, Dale, and I played youth hockey together when we were, when we were kids. Um, So we would see each other once in a while, but you know, it's interesting, Gary, but Yogi would have loved analytics and people look at me like I'm crazy when it happens. Yogi devoured the sports page. Yogi devoured box scores. Even before anybody knew it, like you would walk in the locker room and Yogi could tell you four series out, he could tell you the pictures that you were going to see. He could tell you who was hot and who was not. He could tell you, Hey, I remember, he remembered everything. He could tell you how to pitch a guy based off his memory, what a guy did. Uh, so he would have loved all this information, but I can remember one day, Rex Huddler and I, you know, young guys, we walk into the locker room in spring training and, you know, Yogi looks at us and, you know, asks us, asking, Hey, where are you guys going for dinner tonight? And we said, ah, I don't know. We may go to, you know, we may go to there was a place down in, in in Fort Lauderdale called like Bojangles. It was like a comedy club restaurant. And he goes, oh, nobody goes there anymore. I said, really? I thought it was a really good place. He goes, oh, nobody goes there. I said, why doesn't anybody go there? He goes, it's always too crowded. <laughs> so, you, you, and it makes sense, right? Do you want to go somewhere that's crowded? I don't. <laughs> that's perfect. You know, so he he had all kinds of them, but again, what a what an amazing guy and. You know, you'd look at that body, walk across the field sometimes in practice, and you realize it's maybe one of the 10 greatest baseball players that's ever lived. Pretty amazing. Well, Scott, I kept you way longer than I promised. I
0: really enjoyed this conversation. This was so much fun. Thanks for all the time and sharing some great stories. We really like
2: I said, my uh, my fondness for the city of Seattle runs deep. So uh, anytime you guys ever need me, don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, picture this.